Um, as you know, I am a graduate of Christum College, and so it's a great honor when I have professors from there come and speak, men that have formed my own life, and it's um, even a greater honor when I have fellow graduates come and speak, because then I get to not only say I learned from them, but I learned what they learned. So, um, although I would not place myself in the same uh, class as Father Joseph Mary, it is a great honor for us to have him here, a great honor for me to associate myself with him. He has spent uh, a number of years now coming back to Christendom to um, serve the students there because of the gift he received there. And so every year, almost twice a year now, hasn't it been? He comes back and offers retreats to the students, and um, since I got my job here, started our program, I've been trying to get Father to come to speak with us, trying to track down his phone number, trying to get him for a time when he's available. So uh, it's great to have him here tonight. Lord, we ask you to help us to go deeper in conversion to you. We ask the help of Mary, the mother of your son. Help Mary, full of grace, fill us with thee, and bless thou, woman, and bless the of Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of death. So looking at all these posters, I feel a bit intimidated. <laughs> big names. I'm not a big name. But uh, it's also quite um, an honor to be speaking here, for, partly because being with you, or first of all being with you, but also because it's the Church of St. John the Beloved. There's very, very few churches in honor, named in honor of St. John the Apostle. And our community is the community of St. John the Apostle, the Beloved. Because most of the St. John churches are St. John the Baptist. This is St. John the Evangelist. Um, there was a fellow, a good Irishman, I'm calling Peter O'Toole, who loved his white spirits. And so Peter O'Toole would imbibe every evening after work. And then after work, he would head home to, to his home. But one night, he decided to take a shortcut through the graveyard. And so he was weaving through the graveyard. And suddenly, he fell into an open grave, <laughs> down to the bottom, and went fast asleep. And the next morning, he pulled himself up. He looked around and saw all the tombstones. and says, glory be to God. It's resurrection day, and I'm the first one. <laughs> Also, they say, or they add, what is the difference, you've heard this no doubt, what is the difference between a terrorist and a liturgist? <laughs> you can negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> that is, liturgists can be very set in their ways, in their thoughts, in their ideology sometimes. Well, I think we can safely say the last 40 years in the church has seen something of a liturgical war, at least a liturgical battleground, of fighting back and forth over whether this is the true spirit of Vatican II or this is the true spirit. In one area of liturgical debate, which Cardinal Ratzinger also entered into, is that of versus uh, populum are versus deum, that is, turning toward the people or turning toward God. That is, which of these two directions is the best direction for prayer? Ad populum, toward the people, or ad deum, turning toward God? Or sometimes it's called ad orientem, toward the east. Because the east symbolizes, the east is the direction of the rising sun, and the rising sun represents the risen one and the one who is to return the end of times. So are these, that is, facing the people or facing God, are they contradictory and mutually exclusive directions? Is one better than the other? Does one negate the other? If I face this way, then I can't face this way. If I'm facing this way, I don't face this way. Is, is 
Are they contradictory? They're not necessarily, because I just heard you have the Trinitine or the extraordinary form, now we call it, extraordinary form of the Roman Rite here. When at the high mass, and to a certain extent at the low mass as well, at the high mass, in fact, both positions are present because the priest, particularly for those parts addressed to the people, faces the people, the readings and the uh, greetings. Turns around and says, etc. So when he addresses the people, he faces the people. Whereas when he's addressing God, the Eucharistic prayer, the offertory, he's facing the Father, facing God. So the two positions can be present in the, in the same liturgy. That is to say, when we're speaking to the people, it's ad populum, when we're speaking to God, it's ad deum. Toward the people, speaking to them, toward God, speaking to Him. So it's still one of those questions that's being debated. It's not fully resolved. I was able to, um, some people say, oh, it's forbidden to face, or put your back to the people through. <laughs> or it's forbidden, it's against the council. Which is not, because I was able to celebrate with Pope John Paul II in the year 2000 in his private chapel. Or he can celebrate with me, rather. <laughs> I can celebrate with the Holy Father. Did you do anything Pardon? Did you do anything No, 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 no. I don't think he ever... They say Pope Benedict celebrates the extraordinary form in private. That's what I've heard. But Pope John Paul II, when he was offering this private Mass in his chapel, he wasn't facing us. He was facing this way. And we were behind him. So it's still one of those positions of prayer that hasn't been fully resolved in the church. Pope, or rather Cardinal Ratzinger, argued very strongly in favor of Arroyentum, without negating Adopulum, facing the people. A further symbolism of facing east, facing the same direction as the people, is the priest representing. Jesus the Good Shepherd, as the Good Shepherd, he's leading the sheep toward the Father. So the shepherd, when he's a Good Shepherd, he's in the front, and the sheep follow. If you've been to a country where there are sheep, the shepherd doesn't get behind the sheep and kick them and hit them with the rod and say, move. Instead, he's in front of them, and the sheep follow. So that's part of the symbolism as well. So, in time, I think as the liturgical movement continues, and I think Pope Benedict is a great catalyst with the Holy Spirit to keep this movement going in the right direction. That in time we'll see that these two positions, ad populum and ad deum, will be more and more balanced. I'm not a prophet, but I think we'll see more and more the two will be worked out. So why this question, this liturgical question? Well, because in some fashion, this liturgical question reflects our own personal pilgrimage to heaven. And how is this? In our daily lives, so often there's this tug of war, you might say, between ad populum and ad deum. That is, this struggle to be in the world, but not of it. Or this struggle between, you might say, the tug toward the world, the things of the world, and the things of God. This this tug of war between the world and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit. And St. Paul says something of this nature. He says, he says, there's a real war in our members. Each one of us has a little civil war going on in us. There's the north and the south, <laughs> east and the west. There's this real war in our members. And since then, he says, I do the things I do not want to do. Because our fallen nature is wanting to go this way, but we're wanting to go this way. And so there's this, this tug of war. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. So there's this real war within us at times. So, just as in the liturgy these two positions are not mutually exclusive, so too this 
this odd copulumen within us toward the world and our deum toward God is not necessarily contradictory. That is, we must be in the world without neglecting the things of God. Or you might say, the things of God should influence our actions in the world. That is, the ways of God, the will of God, should influence the affairs of men. Too much today we want to separate church and state, or state and church, that things of God should have nothing to do with public policy. Public policy should intervene in religious affairs. So because the two must be present, nonetheless, you might say, we each need a daily conversio ad deum, conversion to God. A daily ongoing conversion to God, to a deeper, deeper and deeper love of love of God. So it's true that most of us probably at some point had a deep conversion to God, but there's a need for an ongoing conversion to a deeper and deeper in love. Because conversion, the word conversion means a turning around or a turning toward. So conversion implies a turning away from darkness, sin, error, hatred, turning toward a life of love, truth, and light. So each day there should be some form of turning away from darkness and a turning toward the light. If you've ever been in a cave and you've been lost, what do you do? Nothing. You cry. <laughs> if you're a man, if you're a woman, you try to get up. <laughs> and sit and cry. All right, I'm dark. Come save me. Now, if you're in a dark cave, what do you do? You start searching for the light. You don't just sit in the darkness, but you try to find some glimmer of light, a ray of hope. It's the light, you might say, that attracts you to safety, to life. And so you're going to turn your back, so to speak, on the darkness of the cave and go toward the light. In Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, uh, they'll take you through a tour of the cave. And in one part, they'll bring you to a huge chamber, and then they'll turn the electric lights off. And they'll tell you, now put your hand in front of your face. And you can put your hand just millimeters away from your nose, and you can't even see it. The darkness is so profound, there's not even the <clears throat> glimmer of light whereby you can see your hand. And then the guy will take out a big, light it, <clears throat> teeny little flame will light the entire chamber, which is amazing. With, in a fashion, some fashion is like that, we're in the darkness, and then the light of Christ lights up the darkness. And therefore, <clears throat> we're to, even though we might we say we're in the valley of tears, in this place of darkness, we're always to be converting more and more to the light of Christ. So in order to do so, in order to convert more and more, what must we do? Well, let your wife tell you you need to convert. Let your wife remind you how big a sinner you are. <laughs> First of all, we have to recognize that we are lost. We'll never be found unless we recognize we're lost. We'll never be healed unless we recognize we're sick. So we have to know that we're lost and that we need to go further and further in a conversion. For example, a husband and wife are driving around the neighborhood and they're trying to find St. John's Church. And they're lost. And the wife says, dear, I think we're lost. No, we're not. <laughs> dear, do you want to pull over and ask? No. Do you know where you're going? No. <laughs> they'll never find St. John's unless the man humbles himself and acknowledges to his wife that they're lost. So it is we'll never recognize the need for conversion unless we recognize that we're lost. We're sinners. Bishop Sheen tells a beautiful story. He says, the first time he went to a prison to give a, a um, retreat, and by that time he was quite famous, and he said that he knew by going there, those who knew him as his famous preacher, his holy man, 
would immediately identify him as being the Holy One and they were the sinners and they would turn him off. So he said he thought and thought how he could gain their confidence. He began his first conference by saying, there's only one difference between you and me. You got caught, I didn't. <laughs> In other words, we're all sinners. We're all sinners, and we're all sinners who need God's mercy. So we have to first of all recognize we're sinners. We're lost. We need God. We need to convert. And to acknowledge in our misery that we're not sufficient unto ourselves. That is, that we can only find peace and happiness not in ourselves, but in God. Misery is this turning in on self. When somebody has been hurt or depressed, the tendency is to turn inward. And by turning inward, in fact, we're more sad. Because the way God designed us is we can only be fulfilled by turning out of ourselves to another human person, a friend, and ultimately to God. I was reading a story of an exorcist who was exorcising, not exorcising, exorcising somebody who was possessed by the demon. And the priest asked, the possessed or the demon to the possessed person, a hypothetical question. What if two people hated each other on earth, they both die, they both go to hell, what will be their relationship in hell? And the demon said, oh, you stupid person, you don't understand. And he said, hell is eternal solitude. We're eternally turned in on ourselves. Because so that's the ultimate misery. They were made to turn out of themselves toward God, and they're eternally turned inward in solitude. So in our misery as sinners, our misery, so to speak, we need to recognize we are not sufficient unto ourselves. And oftentimes, God allows us, allows people, to hit rock bottom or to go through great suffering in order to wake them up. It's only sometimes when we suffer greatly that suddenly we realize that we are miserable or that we're not sufficient unto ourselves. And sometimes the best way God gets our attention is he puts us on our back in a hospital bed. And we have no way to look but up. So even if we've been going around acting as if God did not exist when we're on our back, we have to start looking toward heaven. And some have said that Terminal diseases are a tremendous gift from God. If we see it as such, it can be a tremendous gift insofar as we know my days are numbered, and it could be a moment of great conversion. People with AIDS, people with cancer, know that they're going to die soon. And so it could be a moment of tremendous grace. Secondly, I would say we need to humbly acknowledge that we cannot find our way out of the darkness by ourselves. That is, by myself, I'm totally helpless. And therefore, God must take me by the hand and lead me to the light. I can't save myself. Today, perhaps, a great temptation of the world, of modern man, is to think that he can save himself. We don't need a savior any longer because we can save ourselves through technology, through science, through computers, etc. We don't need a savior. We can cure all the diseases there are. We can go to the moon and back. We can go to Mars and back. We can go wherever we want. Can't find our way to St. John's, but we can get to the moon. <laughs> so man today, modern man, the temptation of modern man is pride, obviously, but a certain some have said it's a certain rebuilding of the Tower of Babel that through modern technology we can reach heaven by ourselves. And it seems, and to some extent, there's a intent or a certain desire to build or re to regain paradise, to create an earthly paradise. 
a world with no suffering, with perfect children, designer children, etc. We don't need the intervention of God because we can solve all the problems ourselves. We don't need a savior to save us from our misery because we'll fix it. Thirdly, we can say in our poverty and misery, we must choose to depend radically upon God in love. Upon the only one who can save me, which is Jesus Christ. Because when I love, when I recognize I'm a sinner, and I love, then I depend upon the one I love. When two people love each other, a husband and a wife, we hope, most time they do, when they love each other, there's this mutual dependence in love. They become dependent in love, in a good sense, obviously. So God wants us to recognize that we're poor, that we're sinners, and that we need to radically depend upon Him as our Savior. <coughs> so therefore, Christ asked for a childlike abandonment, trust, and confidence in Him. And to recognize, as He says, that without me you can do nothing. Now St. Thomas says, naturally we can plant cabbages and build a house without God. But he says, supernaturally we can't do any good moral actions without the help of God. That's how fragile and weak we are. We can't even perform a meritorious act without the grace of God. You plant cabbages without the grace of God. And so therefore, since we can do nothing without God, it calls for this radical dependence and a childlike surrender to his hands. So until I really recognize my helplessness, then God can't help me. It's only when I realize, recognize that I need Him that He will come to my assistance, that I can be helped by Him. For example, an addict who doesn't recognize his addiction will never be get help, or he won't ask for help, or he won't, nobody can help him because he doesn't recognize he's addicted. It's only when an addict recognizes his helplessness that he's going to start receiving help. Fourthly, in my poverty and my helplessness, I moved to cry out to the Lord, we say, day and night. I think it's one of the Psalms that says, the Lord hears the cry of the poor. Those who are rich don't cry. They don't ask. Because they have everything. They don't need anything. It's the poor those who have nothing who cry out for help. So those who don't recognize they're helpless, who don't recognize they need God, who think that they can save themselves, never bother to cry out. It's only the poor ones, the ones who are helpless, who are lost, who cry. So all of you should be crybabies. <laughs> Crying to God day and night. If we really recognize our poverty, then we will be constantly crying out to God. As a little child. In the uh, story of Ishmael, for example, if you remember, Abraham begot Ishmael with uh, Hagar, and Sarah, a woman, not jealous, joking, joking, just joking. Sarah was jealous of Hagar, and what did she do? She drove her out in the desert, and after a while, little Ishmael and Hagar had no more food, no more water. And so she set little Ishmael under a tree. She couldn't bear to watch him die of starvation. So she put him under a tree, and then she went to die in her corner. Well, the little, little boy Ishmael was crying, crying. And it says God heard his cry and came to his assistance. So we're to be like little Ishmael in our weakness and poverty, crying out to God day and night. And God, as a good father, comes running to his helpless child.
And therefore, prayer, this crying out is prayer, <coughs> prayer is truly the lifeline between us and God. St. John Vianney says that prayer is like water to a fish. He says, you take a fish out of water, it'll go, and dies. He says, you take a soul out of prayer, and it'll go, and dies. He didn't use this image, but... <laughs> that is to say, just as a fish needs water for its survival, we need prayer to survive. It's this lifeline, this umbilical cord, if you will, between us and our Creator, our Father. And therefore, it's this lifeline, but also prayer is a stepping stone to deeper and deeper conversion to love. Because when I say conversion, conversion is first, it's a turning away from, turning is from sin, and it's turning toward love. It's a conversion should be a deeper and deeper conversion to love. And through prayer, crying to the Lord, you might say it opens our heart like a plant to receive the grace of God. Some of you may have listened to Father Karapi's conversion story. Some of you? Well, Father Karapi tells his story where he was a rich millionaire playboy and then eventually lost all his money. He was a bum on the streets. And his mother would write him regularly and told him, just say one Hail Mary a day. And he said he had even forgotten how to pray the Hail Mary. He had to get a text to pray the Hail Mary. But he promised, because his mother had asked, to, he began to say a Hail Mary each day. And he said it was because of that one Hail Mary each day that his heart began to open once more to grace, and then eventually to compassion, and eventually full return to the church. But it was just through that little crying out, one Hail Mary, that his heart was opened. St. Alphonsus Liguori says, the one who prays will be saved, the one who refuses to pray will be lost. It's that simple. The one who prays, who turns to God, God will not abandon him. The one who refuses to pray is closing himself to the, to the light. He's lost in the cave. So prayer becomes our very food insofar as it's our, it's our connection to our source. It's our source, the Father who feeds us, who nourishes us with his very life. So prayer is this trusting cry of a child to its father, begging for all the good things it needs. And most especially, God wants to give himself more than anything. Some saints have, have said that prayer is nothing more than this loving glance at God, or this, this loving conversation between two lovers. That as I look at him, he looks at me. It's a simple, loving gaze of one to the other. When two young people are in love, what do they do? Oh, you're so beautiful. No, you're beautiful. And they just can't get enough of looking at each other. And then when they get old, what happens? They can't even see each other. Is that you, Mabertha? <laughs> but if you've noticed, when couples are young, they spend time together, they can't get enough of each other, and it's always because they just want to learn about each other, or they're nervous, and so there's lots of chitter-chatter, and they just can't get enough of stargazing. But as they get older, what do they do? You know, they sit on the front porch together, just holding hands, they say nothing. They're just happy to be together, but they don't. I mean, they may say nothing, but they're just happy to be together. Well, when we first begin to familiarize with God, perhaps we chatter a lot, but then as we become, go deeper and deeper in our conversion, we're just happy to be with the one we love. And we don't have to say a lot, we can just be with them. Pope John Paul II says the great temptation of today is to put more emphasis on doing than being. So often when we go to the chapel, we have to do lots of things, but God says, shut up, be quiet, just be with me. 
he doesn't say shut up, but <laughs> he just wants us, first of all, just to be with him. We don't have to do a lot of things or say a lot of things, just be with one's beloved, one's friend. And prayer is this mutual gazing at one another. St. John Vianney said that uh, in his parish of ours, he would notice an old man who would come in and pray in the church every day without a prayer book, without using things, but just kneeling there, looking at the tabernacle. And so St. John Vianney one day asked the old man, he says, what do you do during all the time you're here? And his simple response was, I look at him and he looks at me. So that's really prayer in the most beautiful sense is I look at him and he looks at me. And by looking at him, he changes me to become like him. When we are with a friend, or when we, I tell people, when you lay out in the sun, the men do this and women don't, but when you lay out in the sun to get a suntan, what happens? You get darker and darker. You get sunburned. You, you're changed. The sun changes you. Well, when we go before the Son of God Himself, what happens? The more we spend time with Him, the more we become like Him. He changes us. If you hang around with horse thieves, you'll probably be a horse thief. If you hang around with drug addicts, you'll probably start selling drugs. If you hang around with Jesus Christ, you'll become Christ-like. So prayer is really this heart-to-heart -heart conversation between, between two friends. And I become more and more like my friend, Jesus Christ. He changes my heart. St. Francis himself says that prayer is these arrows of love. You're sending these arrows of love to the heart of God. And then he's sending them back, big thunderbolts, <laughs> thunderbolts of love. And so through, through prayer, <coughs> I become... I beg God to transform me, to divinize me, to make me like Himself, to bring me into a deeper, deeper communion with Him. And so as people who pray, asking for a deeper conversion, we should really become beggars before God. When you're rich, you don't beg. When you're poor, you beg. So when you're, you recognize your poverty, you're this beggar before God, begging for all the good things you need. And He knows what we need best. Because he's a good father. Where I live in Peoria, sometimes in the past we had beggars coming to the house. Father could have. And my car just broke down. It was always the same story. My car just broke down. We ran out of gas. I said, "Here's the fifth one." And his car broke down. The pump gas. But they would come asking, and they finally realized we weren't going to give them money. So then they would start asking for food. And sometimes you'd bring them food, and most of them would take it. Some of them look at it and say, "I don't want this." And you knew they were a rich beggar, but not a poor beggar. <laughs> Sometimes God will see you're begging, and God says, okay, here you go. Here's some cancer. Here's <laughs> And you go, uh, uh, I don't want that. God says, are you a rich beggar or a poor beggar? He doesn't send us suffering just to make us squirm, but <laughs> are we truly a poor beggar before God? in the sense of begging for all those things he knows he knows we need. St. Augustine asks, why do we even pray if God already knows what he's going to give us? It's a waste of time to pray. Is it why, he says, you know, it's not as if you have to make known to God what he's going to give you. He already knows. So why do we even pray? So why do you pray if God already knows? We'll come back to it. St. <laughs> Augustine says the reason for which we pray he says is not to make known to God what we need he already knows and he already knows what he's going to give us but he says we pray and by that prayer by asking the desire in our heart increases to the point where, where we are ready to receive what God already planned to give us so our desire increases through prayer such that God prepares the heart to receive the gift that he already planned to give it. It's like a child who comes to its mother and says, Mommy, can I have a cookie? And the mother says, No. Well, if the child did not really want the cookie, it doesn't come back and ask. But if the child really wants the cookie, comes back 10 minutes later and says, Mommy, can I have the cookie? No. Okay. 15 minutes later, can I have the cookie? No. 
All the while, the child's desire is increasing for that cookie. <laughs> and he comes back a fourth time, please, mommy, grab the cookie. Yes, honey. And she gives the cookie, and the child is so grateful, so filled with joy, whereas, whereas if the mother gave him the cookie the first time, you know, the child you know, took it, you know, I deserve it, it's mine, would have been less ready to receive the gift and less appreciative. So God is like that sometimes. He says, no, not yet, not yet. Because he wants to prepare us more and more to receive the gift he wants to give us. So as beggars, we can constantly beg God, convert my heart, convert my heart, take me deeper and deeper in love. Because we're on this earth to love and nothing else. Therefore, our conversion should constantly be a conversion to deeper and deeper love, charity. But as God converts us, as God takes us deeper, it oftentimes, not often, always means a purification. Because he has to purge away what is not of him. He has to purge away all the rust and the, the dross and everything else, the attachments that we have. He has to cleanse it away so that our love will be even more pure. And oftentimes the way he purges it is through easy life, comforts. <laughs> through trial, through suffering, through the fire. If you want to rid metals of impurities, you stick them in the fire, and they go, <clears throat> and metals scream, all the while they're being cleansed. Well, God has to lead us through a purifying fire, which is charity. Peter says, charity covers a multitude of sins. It's not the suffering that purifies us, it's charity, suffering united to love that purifies us. It's the love that purifies. But God knows it's suffering more than anything else that will take us further and further in love. Pope, Pope John Paul II in his uh, apostolic letter, Salvifici Dolores, on the Christian meaning of human suffering, asks, why does God still permit suffering after Calvary? If Jesus was victorious, why does he still need to suffer? His answer is, very simple, God knows that suffering is a royal way to holiness. It's the way that takes us deepest, deeper, the fastest, and the reason he permits suffering is to, in order to take us further in love. Because when we suffer, it's a real test of our love. And if we suffer well, we'll go deeper in love. And so God, you might say, has this divine wire brush, scrubbing, 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 to scrub away all that is not of Him. Not to make us suffer, per se, first of all, but rather to make us pure and clean and holy. And He uses various ways to convert our heart. Oftentimes suffering, there can be other means too. Uh, St. John Vianney, uh, there was a story related to him of this hunter who came to Ars because he was intrigued by this famous um, priest. And so the hunter showed up in Ars with his little beagle hound. He was going to go hunting after They said over 100,000 people would come to the little town of Ars to see this famous priest. Yeah, 100,000 people a year would come there. And practically all 100,000 wanted to go to confession. So in a year, He'd hear 100,000 confessions. 18 hours a day, he would sit in the confessional. They said sometimes, in the summer, it would be so hot, he would faint in the confessional. <coughs> sometimes the smells were so bad because there were so many people in the church, it was the farm, farmland, that he would faint from the smells. But also they said he would cry and cry in the confessional. And sometimes people would say, Father, why do you cry so much? And he'd say, because you don't cry enough. Mm. But this one fellow showed up with his beagle hound. He wanted to see this famous priest, and he was standing in the town square, and St. John Vinny comes walking by, and he stops. He doesn't even look at the man or address the man. He turns to the dog, the beagle hound, and he says to the dog, how I wish your master's soul was as pure as yours. <laughs> <laughs> he walks away. 
Well, obviously the hunter was furious. He went and got a ticket. He's going to get a ticket to go to confession. He got a ticket, and I guess he wanted to chew out this famous priest. And in fact, he made a good confession, helped by John Vianney, and he sold his legal helmet and became a Trappist monk. The point being, sometimes God will need to shake us to wake us up. And sometimes the way he wakes us up is through suffering. So this purifying fire of love, this purifying flame of God, obviously needs to take place here. And if it doesn't take place here adequately, if you want to go to heaven, it will take place somewhere. And that's called purgatory. So it's going to be here or after. Somehow, God needs to clean up his little child to bring him home. And so that's why it's so good to ask God in prayer, give me my purgatory, my purification on earth. And it doesn't mean it has to necessarily always be suffering. It's the love that purifies, which God so often unites or uses suffering as a means to cleanse us, unite that suffering with love. So we can beg God as beggars to cleanse us, to purify us, such that we become a living flame of love, as St. John of the Cross says. That we'll each be this little torch in the darkness. As Paul says, it is now no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It'll be the love of Christ, this flame of Christ radiating in the darkness. Lastly, I would say, when we cry out and ask God to convert us, to purify us, that we also must be ready to humbly accept His medicine. Now, so many, people, so many times people say, I'm afraid to ask God because I think He'll do something terrible to me. <laughs> so often we're held back from advancing in holiness because we're afraid God's going to do something I don't want to do. And so we imagine God as being this, this fickle God who's just up there waiting to <laughs> purchase. No, he's a good father who knows his child needs, needs to be clean. And so God knows what is best suited for each of us in our divinization. If Divinization means he wants to make us divine light. He wants to make us himself. And so he knows what is best suited for each of us to sanctify us, to divinize us. The Mormons believe we become a God. We believe correctly and philosophically correctly. We don't become a God. Our being is not changed. We remain human beings, but our life becomes God-like. We're God in our life, but not in our being. They say we're God in our being and our life. They say, no. The God transforms us as human beings such that we remain human beings, but we are God-like. We have God's life within us. So that's where we're called to aid God in our conversion, but also you know, let God do His work within us. Don't hinder His work. And he's not a fickle God who's just waiting to make you suffer. He knows what is best. And if we don't get in the way, he'll do his work. Slowly, and sometimes we don't understand. Now, with Mother Teresa's uh, writings becoming public, you see how God purged and purified and converted Mother. I was just reading last night, she was saying, forgive me, I'm not even sure there's a God. Heaven seems close to me, I've been rejected. I'm not even sure I believe, etc. These incredible sayings or writings of a great saint, but somehow she was experiencing this deep darkness, this rejection by God, and through it, God was taking her deeper and deeper and deeper. And now we're seeing that she's a much greater saint than we even realized. Because God was using the darkness to help her to identify with the abandoned, the rejected, the unwanted, to whom she was called to serve. She was literally identifying with the course of the poor. Now sometimes, too, it seems when we pray, our prayers are not heard or they're not answered. And I remind people, God is not deaf. He hears every prayer. 
And God is not stubborn. He answers every prayer. He hears every prayer. He answers every prayer. And Sheen tells this story too. He says a little girl was praying for a bite for Christmas. And her father was an atheist said, you know, it's, there's no God. Don't pray. You're not going to get the bite. Don't worry about it. There's no God. It doesn't do any good. So she prayed and prayed and prayed. And she, Christmas came. Christmas went. She didn't get the bite. And her father said, you see, there's no God. You need the bike. God didn't answer your prayer. And she said, well, yes, he did. He said, oh, well, what did he say? She said, God said no. <laughs> so God always answers. Sometimes his answer is yes, this is good for you. Sometimes his answer is no, this is not good for you. I have something even better to give you. So when we pray, 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 it doesn't seem like something changes. It's because God is wanting to give us something different or better than what we think is good for us. When we, St. Uh, Thomas says an infallible prayer is when we always pray for ourselves. He says sometimes if we pray for another, obviously they have the freedom to reject God's grace. He says when we pray for ourselves, God will always answer. And when we pray for something that's good for our salvation, humility, purity, patience, he says that's an infallible prayer God will always answer. He may not give us what we're asking for right now, but he'll give it in his own way, in his own good time, when he knows we're ready, best ready to receive it. So all God asks from us in our conversion is our humble, trusting cooperation and surrender. He'll do the work as long as we don't get in the way. We have to participate, but we also have to be able to step back and let God do His work, converting us, transforming us. And so God wants, by this deeper, deeper conversion to love, to turn us even more ad populum, toward our brothers and sisters in love, and even more so ad denum, to Him in love. So it becomes both. To a deeper conversion, He turns us even more toward our brothers and sisters in love, and to himself in love. Because as Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. He alone can fill us, fill our hearts. Jesus told St. Margaret Mary, says, she said, she wrote, Our Lord frequently told me that I should keep a secluded place for him in my heart where he would teach me to love him. So there should be this place, you might say, reserved in our heart, Adeum for God, or for God. It's a place where God, it's God's place, and it's there He will teach me, convert me, sanctify me. So let us ask Our Lady to help us, to help our Lord in our conversion. And never think that we're converted enough, because we're not. Our whole life long is a school of love, a conversion to deeper and deeper love. And it's where Our Lady most especially will come to our help to open us up through prayer, through humility, through confidence to the love of God, to a transformation in love. I'll close with a prayer. And if you have questions, don't hesitate. This is a beautiful prayer about our journey through life. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Father, what is
just take maybe uh, five questions or sure. something like that. People, I don't need to get home, so we won't go on too long. So. Father, could you please elaborate more on the comment that you made about how when we pray, we're actually, it's not, you know, what St. Augustine said, it's not actually for him, it's for our own edification, so that we the point where we actually desire what we've already been given or what has planned been planned for us. Um, and just unite that in some way with discernment and how, you know, uh, I, I don't know if other people share this, but it's, what I find so difficult is discerning God's will. Every decision, you know, and because as a mother, the, the things that I decide affect other people. Sure, yes. And it's confusing because, you know, what's best for him? What's best for her? Well, you know, and, um, and so this combining of my effort in prayer to discern God's will for me while I try to see that it's probably already going on, but how do I get there and how do I accept it and then how do I get to where that's supposed to lead me? Um, St. Augustine also says, love and do whatever you will. <laughs> so, loving and truth, do whatever you want. No, the reason he says that is if we really love the truth, then we'll always do the truth, we'll always live the truth. So, insofar as the sermon goes, as long as we're truly seeking the will of God and we're doing the best we can to discern it, and yet it's not absolutely clear, God knows we're trying to do His will, we want to do His will, we're praying for light, and then we just have to go forward, trusting that we are doing right. And if it's not exactly what He wants, we're close to us. But sometimes God doesn't show us immediately. He just wants us to go through this door, and then once we've gone to that door, then He'll show us the next step. Because sometimes if He were to show us the whole picture all at once, we'd be frightened and we wouldn't we'd go through the first door. So discernment comes through prayer, through spiritual direction, through discerning the desires and the places in my heart, discerning the circumstances, etc. As long as, again, we're praying, we really want to please God, we're trying to please God, and we have the means to do whatever it is that's possible, and it's not a sin, then we go forward. So love and do whatever you want. <laughs> Don't tell that to young people. <laughs> I thought grace was necessary to discern. It is. <laughs> what do you mean? So you could go to confession and you would get more grace that way, or go to mass and praying would be enough. Sure, all, all there's many, many means, yes. But if you're having for, trouble discerning, discerning. Then you might seek means of grace. Yeah, definitely also, right, through, through the rosary, through the sacraments, um, through the scriptures. Exactly, yeah, through grace, high grace. All is grace. Santa Teresa, tout est Everything's grace. Because everything's a gift from God. And the challenge is how to push oneself to desire to love in the first place. You know, it's so easy to graze like a cow versus to, you know, to, to, to <laughs> take, to, you know, to say, okay, God, I want this, this, this. To enjoy what God gives or to ask for things from Him versus to love, you know. It's so, so Sure, there's, a, there's always in us a materialistic or consumer mentality, and it's, we say cafeteria Catholics who pick and choose what they want to eat. There is always that temptation to take what we want rather than to receive what God wants to give us, and what He wants to give us is always best. And as I say, He knows the best way to take us further and deeper oftentimes is suffering. Not that we should necessarily ask for suffering, but sometimes we can. If we say, please make me a victim soul. Padre Pio used to say, I suffer because I do not suffer. <laughs> I imagine most of you probably say that each day. <laughs> I suffer because I do not suffer. Lord, I'm suffering because I'm not suffering. Please send me suffering so I won't suffer. <laughs> In a sense, that was a divine look, obviously. He saw the great value of suffering. Because Pope John Paul II said, God permits suffering still to take us, obviously, ultimately further in love. But he said also, Protestants say Christ suffered and died once and for all, and it's done. It was a historical thing that took place, it's finished. Whereas the Church says, he suffered once and for all, and it's not finished. Because Calvary... Historically, it's, it's no longer there, 
But Calvary continues through the mystical body of Christ. Jesus is still suffering, still redeeming souls through our sufferings. So somehow our sufferings are caught up to the mystery of Calvary. The physical body of Christ suffered on Calvary, but the mystical body of Christ is still suffering today. So when we receive well and live well our sufferings, Jesus is saving souls, redeeming souls somehow through to us. So that's an incredible value of suffering, incredible gift of suffering, to be a co-redeemer with Christ. But the love dimension doesn't come easy still. That doesn't answer that. Uh, well, love. Uh, well, when you suffer, you hope to love in the midst of the suffering. But uh, love transforms all. When we love, we see everything differently. When somebody's in love, they see the world completely different. When a young man falls in love with a young woman, everything's different. Even if he's having a bad time, he sees everything with the rosy glasses. So when we, when there's truly God's transforming us by His love, we see everything differently, even suffering in a different light. So it's His initiative. Yes, and we're asking for it. We're cooperating with it. We're receiving it. But yeah, God takes the initiative. Jesus told the apostles, you did not choose me, I chose you. I took the mission. But I have a question on the the the, the, the poetry you from, the Tom, from Thomas Thomas Martin. Oh the prayer. The prayer, Thomas the prayer yes. yes, from Thomas. I wasn't gonna say it because it's yeah. a little bit on my comments. He's from Kentucky, that's where uh, that's my younger brother went back there. We're both from, we're kicks from the sticks. That I, uh, could you, uh, could you make it more clear that, uh, that I'm not quite understand it? Um, that I think I'm doing to please you, in fact, I'm going to please you or something? I don't remember exactly. It says, Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. Because sometimes we'll be deceived. We think we're doing the will of God. But he says, but I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please I want to please you. I desire to please you. It's true. Sometimes I may think I am, but I'm not. But the fact that I desire it does in fact please you. Because I want to do your will, even if I don't always do it. It's like a child who... He wants to do everything possible to love and to please his parents, but he doesn't always do exactly what they ask. But the parents are very pleased, even if the child falls short, they're very pleased that the child, nonetheless, despite his weakness, wants to please his parents. Where can we find that? I got it off the internet. Googled, as we say nowadays, I Googled Thomas Merton's prayer and it came up. Thomas, Thomas Merton's prayer. Now, I know Thomas Merton is quite controversial, but uh, it's a beautiful prayer. Merton, you can have it. It's my gift to you. See, God answered your prayer. Desire holiness and really to to grow in God's love and, and do everything that God asks of us, um, and that purification, that sanctification, um, will it does take place? He answers that prayer. Sure. Sometimes we don't perceive it or see it. Sometimes we say, not so fast. <laughs> but he'll do, yes, definitely, because God wants us to become more and more like himself. And so he'll do it for sure. Sometimes we'll say, speed up. Sometimes we'll say, slow down. Sometimes we say, speed up. God says, no, you're not. You're too dumb. I have to go slower with you. <laughs> Sometimes we want to be a saint today or yesterday. And God says, no, I have to go slowly because you're not yet ready. You know, it takes time. So we become saints, godlike, little by little, bit by bit. So we have to be very, very patient with God and with ourselves. He places that desire in our hearts. Yes. You mentioned the word purgatory. And uh, I belong to a Christian men's group on Sunday Tuesday. 
20, 25 men. Most of them are not Catholics, probably half a dozen have fallen away Catholics. And every once in a while the issue of purgatory arises and it's skirted. And uh, I've never really been able to handle it uh, well before this group and this described purgatory, except to say that I feel like I deserve it and I look forward to it. <laughs> so uh, how do we Catholics handle this uh, so that others who are not of our faith can appreciate well, I think you can certainly appeal to Scripture, and as in Catechism, they give scriptural verses referring indirectly to the mystery of purgatory. Like Jesus says, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. That's an indirect reference to purgatory. Or Paul speaks about, and you will have to go through a purifying fire. Um, so we, certainly, to, for Protestants, you can appeal to Scripture, and there's tradition as well. And then there's the various mystical experiences of saints who were able accept that necessarily, but who experienced purgatory or were taken to purgatory. But I think, too, just at a human level, you can tell them that you know, we do want to see God, and when we, when we want to see God, we don't want any impurity whatsoever to be within us. Because they say the souls in purgatory want to be there because they want to be purified, to be as pure as possible, to see the all-pure God. So I think Protestants can understand and we want to be absolutely pure to see God. Now, they would say, yes, the blood of Jesus totally purifies us, which it does, but then there's still, I think anyone could say that at death, none of us are perhaps adequately detached from all things. So purgatory is a time of purifying us, the catechism says, of these attachments to think, to material things, to our own will, to things that, have, that prevent us from being totally godlike. It's a question of faith, though. I mean, yeah, it's an article of faith, so if they don't believe, you can show them and guide them and point out things, but ultimately, it's a, it's a question of faith. Otherwise, you can just tell them, well, you're going to burn in purgatory. <laughs> Supposedly, this man came up to Padre Pio once and said, you know, Father, he says, I don't believe in hell. Father, uh, Padre Pio says, well, you will when you get there. <laughs> Thank you, Father. Hope you come and visit us again soon.